Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold. It's hour two. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. Delighted to be with all of you here in the afternoon, whether you're driving home from work or maybe getting those kids from school, perhaps making dinner or just sitting down and enjoying a restful afternoon. It's great to talk about Jesus and his kingdom with you on this show. And Rosie, we uh, have a great guest coming up here now. We have a best-selling author on the line of over 105 books, 2.5 million copies appeared on every network morning TV show. It's Ace Collins. He's been on the show before and we actually have a giveaway. So we need to queue up the text line here. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I look forward. I get to book these great guests that we have. And Ace and I started emailing back and forth way back in February. And he can tell you all about that, but you really don't need to. Anyway, the whole part is that Ace is an amazing writer. He's an amazing storyteller and special. I don't think we've ever done this on Afternoons with Bill Arnold, but we have two Books to give away. And not just books. We're no. talking about series of books here. Yes. So yes. it's the first. So he Ace has a series called the President Series, and he has writ, written his 18th edition. And so we are giving away a compilation of the first three books. So we have enough books. We have two sets of three, the first three books yes. in this 18-book series that is titled uh, In the President's Service Series, and he's just released book 18. But if you've never read these books, this is a great opportunity to get into the series by getting those first three books. And you just have to text in, right? Right, you do. But what's the number, Peter? I well, can't see it from the me. Number, I see the it number is the number. Our listeners are very familiar with the number, I'm sure, by now. But if you don't know, you just text in 877-933-2484, the word book, I assume, into That's the text it. line. Again, one more time. Text the word book to 877 933 2484, and you'll be put into a drawing to get the first three books in Ace Collins's In the President's Service series. And with no further ado, let's bring Ace into the program. Hi, Ace. How you all doing? Well, we, um, it's a beautiful fall uh, afternoon here in in the hills of Arkansas. I hope it is pretty there as well. Yeah, well, it's it's start where we have some snow threatening here in Minnesota, Ooh. where we're broadcasting from, as of this Friday, from what I understand. So it's it's been beautiful today. It's going to get cold very soon, Ace. But just love to have you on the program. I know you just released the 18th book in this series, and yeah, I'm curious. You can tell us a bit about the book, but also tell us a bit about how to sustain this long of a series without losing momentum. Well, how it began is fascinating because Barbour Publishing came to me um, and they proposed me writing a book about an inanimate object that goes clear through the book and the people become interchangeable on how they touch or interact with the inanimate object. And they so they asked me to give them several different things I could do. They also wanted it set uh, in the Depression. And so I pitched a ring, I pitched a $100 bill, and I pitched a classic car, a 1936 Packard. And uh, they went for the Packard. And so I had to write a novel, which became the Yellow Packard, which was a really fun novel to write. Um, and, And we sustained the novel with these different characters going through. And there was one character that jumped out, and she became kind of the anchor of the book and eventually she got the Packard in the end and solved the mystery and her you know her name was Helen Meeker 
And I figured when I got to play with her and the other people in this book, um, I would eventually have to put them away and never hear from them again. Well, about a year later after this came out, another publisher came to me and said, would you like to consider, would you consider writing more in this series? And they bought the rights and they came back to me and I said, sure. And so we uh, wrote a novella called, uh, I think, A Date with Death. And that was the beginning of it. And now I've gotten to write over two million words about this principal character, Helen Meeker. I've had an opportunity to take her team. She works for the president of the United States um, in various capacities during World War II. So I've gotten to go through the war pretty much month at a time. And we're in 1943 right now in black or white. And I've explored issues that are modern day issues set against the backdrop of history. And it, it's fascinating because uh, uh, the latest novel that we've got, Black or White, actually looks at a, at a woman who is, who is biracial but passing for white in, in the society of the time because it's her only way to get ahead. And she's murdered. And there are so many different layers of people who might have done it. And Helen Meeker and her team, which is made up of an African-American man and a, and a Native American woman, uh, have to solve this. And so you have the dynamic of a woman doing a man's job. You have the dynamic race. You have the dynamic also subtly of faith because these are novels that are aimed at I, I I'm a Christian who writes novels aimed at secular markets. You know, my Christie award-winning book from a few years ago, Black uh, was which was initially titled Black or White, but it became uh, the color of justice. It, it in my mind was a secular book with Christian subtleties. And I do that because I don't want to just preach to the choir. I want to reach people with that subtle message with uh, that's layered into the context of what I write. So if you're picking up a secular book or a Christian book from me, they're going to read the same way. They're not going to have profanity. You know, they're not going to have blatant sex. They're just going to have good action adventure underneath it all with the characters questioning from time to time their own faith, what they believe in having their faith challenged. And therefore you have these, I think, characters that are fascinating because they do have weaknesses, they do have fears, they do have doubts. And in moments when they need it, they do find a way to, to reconnect with their faith. And the questions they ask are the same questions that I get asked all the time by, by normal, everyday people, Christian and non-Christian. And so by having these novels written in this way, it, it is fascinating. And also people get hooked on them. You know, I, I initially described them as episodes because I thought of this as a TV series. And now I, you know, I just called them, you know, now just called them the next book in the series. But I think the five, five or six, I labeled as episodes because they're episodes out of the life of of Helen Meeker. Um, and, and as you read the series, you may get mad at me from time to time because I kill off characters you may like. But life in in war is not simple, and, and good people die, and, and you have to have that tragedy to also understand the realities of what these people are fighting for and what these people are trying to protect. And so for me, it has been, gosh, you know, I look, my, I think my best novel of all time is going to be coming out this spring, and it's gonna, uh, right now it's, it's titled um, The Last Imprint. But I have never had as much fun writing uh, books as I have 
the when you count the yellow Packard, the 19 in the series. Of course, this is the 18 in the actual in the President's Service series. The yellow Packard was a standalone novel. So it, it has been an incredible ride for me to be able to do this. And we're going to continue to do this for at least probably another three or four books till we get through with uh, World War II. Mm. And, uh, and I love hearing from the fans that read them because they have insights and they have input. And a lot of them, their insights and their input, actually, I think about and think, yeah, yeah, that's a good facet of that personality I haven't exploited yet. And thank you for pointing it out. And I'll put that in the next, in the next book. I'm talking with Ace Collins, best-selling author. He's got book 18 in his In the President's Service series. And we do have some copies that are available to give away, not of this book, but if you're not familiar with the series, you can uh, text the word book to 877-933-2484. We have two sets of the first three books in this series to give away. And Rosie, I know the text light is already lighting up listening to Ace cover this ground as a Christian, but with some pretty gritty material that he's I working with. I love that. So I didn't know that that was his intention when he was writing these books, and that's amazing. Yeah. But I also love to see the text line lighting up. And you did a great job as a co-host or as a step-in for Bill to just articulate that. Two books. It's a compilation of his first Three stories of the president's service. I have never done that much math in my entire life, Rosie. Ace, we're <laughs> That's a st- lot. It's a tongue twister. Wait, we're going to step away for just a second, Ace, for a short break. When we come back, I have a couple questions to ask you about, and that's how to hold the line as a believer, getting into the true grittiness of human behavior. But also, too, my daughter was just texting me this morning about the fact that as a young person, she bemoans the fact that so many of her great stories she reads or watches, the characters just readily and easily come back to life after death. And she's wondering if we're not missing something about the human condition if we just don't simply let characters die, as you referenced earlier. Again, we're chatting with Ace Collins, best-selling author. We'll uh, be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Bill Arnold this afternoon, and we are chatting with best-selling author Ace Collins and his series in the President's Service series. Ace has released his 18th book in that series. And again, if you've been listening, you know that we have a giveaway going on here. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484, and you'll be entered into a drawing, not for this specific book, but for the first three books of the series that can get you into the whole world of Helen Meeker and, and this ongoing saga that Ace has been developing. And Ace, before the break, I talked a little bit about the idea of, of you being a Christian author, but getting into the real grittiness uh, of a story. And some of the, the synopsis of this book is, is read like this, triggered by a bank robbery, a suicide, and a kidnapping. Meeker's team is put on high alert and drawn into intense action where one of them is gravely injured. These are not exactly soft uh, unicorn and rainbow kinds of topics here, Ace. How do you handle these as a believer but get into the drama of it? Well, the believers were in the middle of World War II also. And so when you're dealing with subjects like this, you're dealing with, dealing with the reality of life or death situations, and, and you don't need to sugarcoat it. Um, and you can also make 
the bad people really bad without having profanity. You can you can highlight things that are tragic without having to go into gory details. You can, you know, Helen Meeker, for instance, throughout this series, you know, as a woman in charge, um, she is is faced with losing her faith because some people around her, she puts them in danger and they don't always live. And then she's ridden, you know, just literally ridden with guilt over that. And who wouldn't feel that? And I think characters need to feel that. I think we we have too many novels, too many books, too many television shows, um, too many movies where where death doesn't hurt. And, and you know, and and there's a in black or white, there's a there's a man who tried, who dies, who's a bad guy, and, and yet one of the lead characters is caught up in in remorse because, and he makes the comment, you know, that they were going, what are you doing? He said, I'm just mourning his death. And they said, why? This man was responsible for killing thousands of people. And his response was, yeah, but he still had a mom and dad. He still had a family. There are still people are going to be hurting because he died. And I think you you go into those things and, and allow people to see that even the enemies have elements of them that have just turned their lives around, if they'll just get right with the Lord, whatever, they have redeeming qualities too, you know, and and it's circumstances that really draw us into a lot of the bad decisions we make and being able to explore those circumstances. And it's also tempting for my, my characters to sell out their morals, to sell out, uh, their, their long held beliefs. Um, because of the situations they're placed in and the tragedies that they witness firsthand. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, one of the key moments in this book is when Sophie Scholl, who was a real character, a uh, real person uh, in World War II, a Christian uh, teenage college student in World War II, that was killed by the Nazis. And they are, she was a real hero. She was actually trying to exploit what the Germans were doing in concentration camps when Germany didn't know about it. She was trying to bring the truth out when the SS got her and and beheaded her. And when my crew, when my team finds out about that, because they knew who she was, they had talked in previous books about what she was doing. When they find out about that, there's a hollowness that goes with that and they want revenge. They, they, they suddenly don't feel much like forgiveness or grace. And they have to fight through their feelings of the tragic end to this girl's life. And also look at her last, they get told her last words, which are on the record, Scholl's last words are, and and that essentially buoys them up to continue the fight for right, to continue realizing that they have to win so that they can save the values that they treasure. Um, and so as a writer, it becomes a lot of fun because I actually have my characters interact with real people. I mean, obviously, if you're in the president's service, you have to interact with FDR in World War II. But they interact with movie stars. They interact with uh, with officers. They interact with uh, with real life characters as as they go through and to actually figure out exactly what the real life character was. And for me, it, I have to be so precise in this, just to satisfy my own regard. I'm 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 actually I have a State Farm Road Act list from 1943, and I go through and make sure I'm on the right roads. And then I go online and I find weather forecast to make sure. It's raining the day I say it's raining. 
And I go through and highlight the movies that were popular and, and the songs. They'll turn on the radio and they'll either hear a popular radio show. So you can talk a little bit about Jack Benny or The Shadow or the, you know, the Whistler, or the other radio shows at the time. Or they'll turn on a modern, uh, uh, the song that's number one in the nation at that time. And they, they can actually, um, and it drives a lot of people, I understand, to go to go find out what that dinosaur sound or Glenn Miller song sounded like. And, and so... You know, I, I'm able to, I'm surrounded by, when I write these things, the literature of the time. And I've got one character that I love to write. She's Helen Meeker's little sister. And her, basically she talks in nothing but 1940s slang. And Helen can't, <laughs> Helen can't understand anything she says. And the uh, my Native American character, Teresa Bryant, whose native, who's, um, Indian name is Morning Song, has to translate for her. And so, you know, it is it. Those are probably some of the most fun chapters I have when Allison suddenly shows up and Ellen has no idea what her sister's saying. Mm-hmm. The chatting with Ace Collins just now. And we've got a few minutes left here where you can get in as part of the book giveaway that we're doing. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, Ace has released the 18th book in his In the President's Service series. And if you win this drawing, you're going to get the first three books of that series packaged for you so you can get into the world that Ace has been creating an ace as you get into some of these characters i would imagine not just are you researching the weather of the day or the songs of the day or the roads of the day but you're probably learning a lot about human behavior human motivation human psyche i I would think that to take the the time to understand what might drive people can really help us understand even sympathizing with them or having compassion or or even loving them better on some level I think you're right. And I also think that, you know, one of the things you you key, Peter, um, with what you just said is the fact that there are motivations people have and and they're based on experiences they've had, uh, tragedies they've had. And each one of these characters that I introduce has has tragedies that have happened in their lives. And hence, those tragedies molded them. In, In some cases, they they stole their faith for them. Uh, they closed that door, and, and that door hasn't been reopened again. In other cases, it strengthened the faith that they had. But it's those circumstances in life that make us different. I, I understood mortality very early in life because my two best friends were killed six months apart mm. when I was 16 years old. One one died of encephalitis, another was killed by a hit-and-run driver. And, and I, I think I understood very early that life was fragile. And, and when you're writing about something that takes place in World War II, it's very, very fragile. And and, and grief is just everywhere. I, I know in black or white, you know, uh, Helen's in the Oval Office and she's looking out the window at the Rose Garden and things look normal. And then she contrasts that to her last trip to London when she was dodging bombs and people were constantly looking at the skies and and and, and they were in the face of a war, yet America, because of being, you know, separated by two different oceans, didn't have that same experiences that they had in, that they had in Great Britain. War was a long way away from us unless you lost someone. And, and that is one of the accounts that we talk about in this book a lot, is that people can't sense war like they could in Europe when it was destroying everything and taking down buildings. In the United States, there was still a lot of normalcy that was going on, and you could escape that reality pretty easily. Um, and and Helen, who has to be in the middle of it, you know, that bothers her that a lot of people around her don't realize uh, the senseless death that's going on. 
um, the tragedies that are happening. And so getting, I'm blessed to be able to write about that and open that back up because, you know, my grandfather was in World War II. Um, there are so many others that I knew. I have an uncle who's 101 years old, um, who's a World War II vet and uh, honored World War II vet. And so to, to write this about them and, and we're looking at life as it is today. So I get to mirror that within these books, like racism and other things that I'm getting to look at. But, but to look at that and pay homage to this generation that was my grandparents and my great uncles and people like that, that is, that's an awesome responsibility. And I don't want to mess it up. I, I really want to get, you know, you mentioned the word grit a while ago. I want to have that grit in there. I want to have that reality in there because what they were going through, what they were facing. You know, I asked my uncle, how did you get off the landing craft to get on the beaches of Iwo Jima? And he said, you really had no choice. The guy, the guy who was driving the laundry, the landing craft had a gun too. And if he had a gun pointing at you, and if you didn't get off, he'd shoot you. You'd rather get shot by the enemy than, the, than your own friend. And, and, and those are, those are things that when you talk about them, that, that's, that's tough stuff. And I think the generation that didn't go through that, um, which my generation didn't, certainly the generation that's in school today, our children's generations, they need to know about that. They need to feel that. Uh, they need to understand how precarious things were in, from 1941 to 1945 here and from 1938 to 1945 in Europe. Yeah, no, I had an opportunity to live in Europe for a bit, and I just was was struck and by the the zeitgeist of death, just because there has been so much war in Europe that there's a familiarity with it. There's a difference associated with it, and and as you said, uh, I had an opportunity to be on the the beaches of Normandy and and didn't oh. know what to expect, but just found myself spontaneously crying over over the sacrifice. That was just again, it's, it's part of almost the air that you breathe in a different kind of way. Well, you know, we were in Great Britain in in 2019, um, and and one of the things you did, and I was there for two weeks, and I was in Liverpool and as well as, well as London, and uh, war to them is not separated by generations. It's still very immediate. You still see bombed out buildings that they preserved. Uh, they, you know, the the Brits still still understand what it was like to go through that, and they are still teaching their children to this day what their great-grandparents, you know, did and what they accomplished mm. in World War II, essentially fighting by themselves until we got in the war in 1941. We we owe the Brits as American a great deal. And I try to put that in the book as well for them holding down the the fate of the entire world until we entered in 1941. Yeah, yes. well, we're up against a hard break, so we got to leave it there, but so appreciate what you're bringing to the table with this series. Again, one more time, we've got a couple of giveaways as part of ACE's series here. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. This is book 18 in the series, and we have a copy of the first three that you can uh, get in the drawing for. So hopefully you'll text the word book into studio, and we'll see who's the winner. Ace, again, thanks so much for joining us and just for taking the time to, to write on some of these really difficult issues, but to, but to keep it from a Christian standpoint. Yeah, and I tell you what, have have your people join me on my my regular Facebook page, which is not my author page, but Ace Andrew Collins. Andrew is my real name, but Ace Andrew Collins. And I tell you what, uh, if mentioned that you heard about us on Faith Radio, and one of those people who who joins and mentions that to me as they. Sorry. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Drive Time, Drive Time.
Welcome back to the show. Bill is away today. This is Peter Kapsner filling in for today. And Rosie, before we were so rudely cut off by the computer network, the gremlins in the system, uh, Ace was talking about the opportunity to maybe pick up another copy of a different book as well if you had to his Facebook page. Right. So if you go to Ace Collins' Facebook page, you can put your name in for a drawing for the actual 18th book. And he said, he was like, oh no, all of your listeners didn't hear. Uh, so he said that he would wait three days before he did that drawing. So everybody that's listening right now has a chance to go to Ace Collins' Facebook page and put your name in for a drawing for the actual 18th book of the series. Yeah, so as we wrap that up again, you can continue to text the word book into studio at 877-933-2484. And we have two copies of his first three books in the series to give away, but also, again, as well, he was trying to get in before the break the, the invitation for all of you to go to his Facebook page, and he'll give away a copy of that new book. Well, let's uh, bring Chris Palmer into the program. It is the second Monday of the month, and that means that it is time for us to geek out on some Greek. And Chris is going to join us to talk us through today, the book of Jude. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's good to be with you guys again. Yeah, great to be with you. So the book of Jude, this is not an easy book to find in the text, right? I mean, you can you can hunt around <laughs> for quite a while in the New Testament and never really come across it. I call it the redheaded stepchild. You know, everybody <laughs> skips past it, they overlook it, and then they're like, oh, what's this book hidden between Revelation and Third John? And it's like, hey, it's Jude, and uh, it's it's in your face, it's inflammatory, and I think it has a lot of rich pastoral insights for um, people to use and to grow from. So it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, it really does. Well, I'd love for you to take us into this a bit, because there's some pretty, pretty extreme craziness going on here, including... Uh, some of the angels and, and some, maybe Satan himself are fighting over the body of Moses. We have some stuff like that going away of other passages that are going yeah. on from, from extra biblical literature of that day. But why don't you just get mm-hmm. us going? What, what are we going to learn from Greek today? Well, I think that the most important thing is with this, I, I, when I was uh, really going through my master's program in exegetical theology, uh, my professor was joking. And we had this class called Writings in Greek Literature, and, and uh, we were trying to translate the book of Jude. He said that when he first started doing Greek, he got really serious about it. And he wanted to start translating the whole book to the New Testament, so he began with Jude, and then he realized this is not the right book to begin with because the structure of the Greek is very articulate, and they use what's—there's um, a, a big word I'll throw it out there for the audience. It's called hapexagumenon, which means words that are only used one time in a body of literature in the book of Jude. There are over a dozen words that are only unique to Jude that are used nowhere else in the New Testament. They're these very fine, precise words that he uses in this argument against the false teachers that were coming in at the time. And um, so it's very rich in theology, and it really shows that, you know, there's a dichotomy, okay? So we have the love of God, we have the grace of God, we have the mercy of God, and yet there's a side of God where he's strict, and, uh, you know, he, he, he vouches for righteousness, and Judas is fighting for that righteousness, and he's um, going to lay out a very heavy argument against those that were committing this heresy, um, which he identifies as turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Uh, And so I think for a lot of pastors, before we get started kind of going through it, it really shows that doctrine is extremely important and that we have a responsibility as pastors and leaders in the church, particularly elders or teaching the elders, to lay out good doctrine and then take a proactive stance when doctrine is being corrupted. And just to delineate and say, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, well, you're a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian, I'm an Arminian, you're a Calvinist, and, and calling each other heretics from that. No, these are really more Christological errors that lead people's soul into damnation versus kind of tit-for-tat on a theological point. Um, and so that's sort of the setup on it. Um, Jude, of course, 
maybe uh, Peter, one of the, Peter, one of the most interesting things about this is, is right from the get-go, uh, when you look at the Greek, um, the very first thing that he says, uh, the author identifies himself as Hudas, okay, so he says his name is Jude, and then there's really not a staunch or strict word order in how the Greek is laid out, and so the next two words that you find are Christu doulos, so he emphasizes Jude, and then he says Jesus Christ. So he puts Jesus Christ right next to his name, and he shows the importance. And I would argue here, grammatically, he's showing that there is an, an allegiance between him and Christ. He says, Yesu, which is obviously the humanity of Christ, Christos, he's identifying him in his messianic role. And then he follows it up with the word doulos, which is a servant or a willful servant. I like to say servant versus slave because... When we say slave today, we think of you know the 19th century version of slave, but this is more of a slave who has willfully placed himself into subjection to Christ for the sake of, uh, of of serving Him, and then he further identifies himself. He says Adelphos de Jacob, or a brother of brother of Jude. Now, uh, or excuse me, brother of James. Now this is interesting because James here, it's pretty apparent that he's the half brother of Christ. So he'd be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But Jude doesn't say that, and, and, and he's the brother of James, so technically Jude is the half-brother of Christ. But Jude doesn't identify himself as that. He identifies himself as the half-brother of James. And he doesn't call himself brother of Jesus. He calls himself servant of Jesus. So I think I would argue here what that's showing is that his spiritual position in Christ as a servant to him was more valuable than than the, the, the physical position that he had, and he and he's showing here just how much of a servant he is to Christ. That yes, he may be my half brother, but I I want you to know the most important thing is that I'm a willful servant as him because I recognize him as the Messiah. I recognize him in his humanity. I recognize him that he wasn't just a human; he was 100% God as well. And it really sets up a very strong Christological picture of of the role that we have as believers. Um, and in how we're to take that subservience to Christ in the way that we approach him as his servants. Hmm. Chris, I'm thinking about the listeners maybe just jumping into their car and wondering what in the world we're talking about as we're getting into this <laughs> obscure book of Jude. But I'm curious, you, you teased out something pretty interesting as you got into the original language of the text. Again, I'm sure yeah. most listeners are familiar, but maybe not all, with the idea that the Bible is not written originally in English. It it was written yeah. uh, Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. And there certainly mm-hmm. are more than just nuances within those original languages. There really are concepts yeah. that, that are unique mm-hmm. to those languages that, that help us understand better. So do, do we catch that sense of, of who Jude was and that his allegiance to Jesus, not just as a half-brother, but as actually the Messiah when we're just reading the English? Or is it, do you really see it much more fully in the original language? I think you see it much more fully in the original language because in, you know, in English we use right-branching sentences. Um, you know, in, in, in the ESV, for instance, it says Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And, and it says that because it has to say that, okay? It has to be in that order for it to make sense. In the Greek, it does not have to be in that order, because you can say, uh, Chris, Peter, radio show, they did, spoke, and talk one to another on faith radio. And, you know, you just understand, you put it all together because you're trained to read that way. But if I wanted to emphasize faith radio for some reason, I might put faith radio in the beginning of the sentence. Faith radio, this is the emphatic part here. And so it doesn't have to be in any particular order, and everything is really bunched up and mixed up in Jude. And so he's taking advantage of word order, and he places himself first. He identifies himself. It's me, guys. It's Jude. I'm writing to you. And the first thing I want you to know, this book is all about Jesus Christ. 
and it's all about me being his servant, even though I am the half-brother, that's not what's important. What's important is I'm willfully serving him. And it shows, again, you know, if, if Jude serves Jesus, and he's the half-brother, how much more should we serve Christ and, and put ourselves into service for him and count our position in him more important? And it really is humbling that maybe I'm a pastor, a leader, or a bishop, or maybe I have a congregation of 10,000 people. But what really matters is, am I a servant of Christ at the end of the day? Mm, that's a really helpful corrective when we start getting a little puffed up maybe in our in our walk of faith, Chris. <laughs> uh, take us into verse 3 a little bit where he starts talking about being very eager to write you about the salvation we share. What is he talking about with this idea of salvation that we share? Be- beautiful question. He says the common salvation. Okay, so he says the koinos, uh, and then he says obviously salvation here, uh, which is soteria. Um, and so the common salvation here would technically, it would suggest here, uh, it, it would be paired with the word here for the faith, or the pistis, so the common salvation and the pistis. What is he referring to? This is showing here, the book of Jude was typically written, we believe, so we put it either between 60 and 80 AD, so it's somewhere in between there, okay? And by by 30 to 50 years after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, there was a common doctrine that was being passed down. There was already tradition the apostles, some of which had already died by this point, they had taught things about Christ, who he was, um, through their understanding of the Holy Spirit and having walked with him. Paul was teaching at that point. I'm not sure if the Judean community had Paul's writings, because we don't know who the community was, but they at least had apostolic doctrine concerning the person and work of Christ and and, and understanding that how the Old Testament found its fulfillment of, in Christ. There was accepted doctrine at that time. And already by that time, there were teachers that were coming to corrupt it and teach things that were contrary to that. So I think this tells us a lot of things, even 2,000 years later. Number one, we aren't reading alone. I mean, as, as Christians today, we didn't come from nowhere. We have, we have what we have about Jesus Christ and the doctrines that we have because they have been handed to us down the line. They have not only been handed to us, they have been carefully preserved by godly men and women who have fought for the faith. And if we, I mean, we could go back to the, the, the church councils, Nicaea, excuse me, Nicaea, um, you name it, how they've had to protect it so that we could have the rich Trinitarian theology, how basically church history is theology being worked out through controversy, and we have it today. And so we ought to appreciate that. We ought to look as much as we can into that and know those doctrines and make those a part of our life because those doctrines lead us to understanding Christ, lead us to salvation, um, and understanding the goodness and mercy of the Lord. And, 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 and to, as believers, defend that. And in order to defend it, we have, we have to know that. Hmm. Uh, it's the second Monday of every month. We talk Greek uh, and geek out on that with Chris Palmer from the different <laughs> passages of Scripture. Chris, we're going to step away for just a minute, but after this beautiful invitation into the salvation that we share, we get into a pretty extended passage in the book of June uh, about individuals who are ungodly people perverting the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and then a series of examples that take us from Egypt to angels who abandoned their proper dwelling to Sodom and Gomorrah to celestial beings heaping abuse. There's a lot here, Chris. So I'd love to get your take on who all of these ungodly people are and what we can learn from that from the book of Jude.
It's about 14 minutes before the top of the hour, and we are chatting with Greek expert Chris Palmer, who joins us regularly here on Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for today as Bill is away. Before we get back to Chris, just want to let you know that if you're new to Faith Radio, if you've been a short time listener, we want to officially welcome you. And we do have free welcome pack gifts, right, Rosie? In terms of uh, giveaways at MyFaithRadio.com, you can just go request yours at the website. Right. It's so cute. You get a little pad of paper and post-it notes with scriptures on it. Well, Love it. The, well each packet can be a little different. Yeah. But um, there's postcards in there uh, that you can send to somebody. But what it really does, Peter, is it allows you to get to know us better. Love that. And, you know, because we're real people here at Faith Radio, <laughs> right? We have, yeah. We're so invested in our listeners and praying for them, and it gets to know this little packet allows you to get to know us a little better. Yeah, indeed. Well, Chris Palmer is also a real person who knows a whole lot about the Greek language, the original language in the New Testament. And, Chris, we've been in the book of Jude, and before the break, started working through this litany of passages, many of which are unfamiliar to me, but it is a little bit of a who's who in terms of people and places and events in which ungodly people begin to sort of slip in among the people of God. We've got Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got angels not keeping their positions. We've got people in Egypt. We've got Balaam's heir and Korah's rebellion in the way of Canaan, on and on and on. Chris, where are we going to go with this? Help us out. Okay, so first, I think we to know, to know what they were doing. Jude uses this really important word, and it's called sea base, which it means ungodly. And ungodly is for him. You know, we think of ungodly in the sense of somebody who's an atheist or somebody who is uh, evil or, or doing demonic things. But but Jude doesn't necessarily mean that when he says this word. He's talking about people who pretend to be godly but have a deep irreverence for the systems that God has put in place or the acceptable doctrine. And he, he says that in their ungodliness, what they do is they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So that's that's the dead ringer right there. What they're doing is they're taking the grace of God and they're making it a means to be sensual or to be sexual or to uh, please their passions that may be riotous living, drunkenness, wild parties, uh, orgies. Those are the types of things that they were doing uh, that gets into Gnostic types of teaching, which we won't go there. But then you said that he used, so what he does is he begins to illustrate this because he would talk about doctrine that, uh, or, or maybe even non-canonical sources at that time that the Judean community may have had and may have been familiar with. And he, he, he uses an example in the verse number six. He says the angels that did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So right now he's using the book of first Enoch, and he's talking about how in the book of Enoch, particularly the book of the watchers, you see how angels, they are lusting after the daughters of men. So the gross heinous sin that they did was is they left the grace of God and they went after something that was strange flesh. Uh, so he uses that as an example that that may have been something that the false teachers were doing at that time. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, they went after strange flesh. They indulged in sexual immorality. So we could look at this as uh, the sin of homosexuality, or we could even look at it as maybe that there were uh, people in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, human beings that were lusting after angels, and vice versa. Um, and then he, he kind of moves forward with this. He uses more examples. He says they've walked in the way of Canaan, which was violence. They abandoned themselves to the sake of Balaam, okay, which was uh, t- selling God out for sake of finances or money. 
and they perished in Korah's rebellion, which at the time was a hatred for authority or disregarding of positions. Uh, so you see, you just see a litany, as you said, of examples all over Scripture of people who had a godless, a godliness about them, but but at the same time they were finding ways to exploit that. They were finding ways to manipulate that. And I think that really serves a huge point that ungodliness today isn't always like a, a mass murderer or some heinous sin. It's always found in the sense of religion, in people that have a connection to God. And it's really putting the church in a position of warning, to take caution. And I think this goes back to all the way to the very top about the importance of understanding acceptable doctrine and how important doctrine is to align our lives by, to order our lives by. And I think it serves pastorally as an example that when we kind of move away from those doctrines slowly but surely and, and we get into things like self-help or motivational things, and leadership principles, which in and of themselves aren't bad, but they become, uh, they become burdensome when we, we give up acceptable doctrine solely for those things. And so I think that doctrine serves as a corrective. It serves as a means whereby we order our Chris, we're losing you there uh, for this minute, but I, I, uh, as you're coming back, and I'm sure we'll get a better connection here in just a second, as you're talking about uh, these people that are falling into sort of this sense of license, licentiousness with their with their behavior and taking advantage of the grace of God, it really does call to mind the passage that Paul writes about when he says, well, where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that we really are greeted with amazing grace in the midst of our sin. But then he also says, so what shall we say? Should we keep on sinning so that grace might increase? May it never be. And so there's really these guardrails between uh, the grace of God that he that He comes with and greets us in our sin, but that's not something to be taken advantage of. Absolutely not. And, you know, it shows that I think if, if you're taking advantage of that, it may even show that there's not a grace at work, because what grace does is it calls us to be holy. The grace of God at work in our life places within us the fear of God, and, and you just don't see that uh, in these in these false teachers' lives. And so um, it, it, it puts us in warning. And then he and then this is where we see the Hapax Lugamana, which is um, right after that, where he calls them all sorts of inflammatory names. He says, they're hidden reefs uh, at your love feast. Um, and so he's talking about, like, love feast at that time is where, you know, you'd have the taking of the Eucharist. Um, but prior to doing that, you know, it was centered around food and fellowship, and it was a time of, of deep reverence where Christians would come together and, and talk doctrinal ideas, etc. Um, and he calls them coral reefs, which means that they're kind of there, they're hidden, and they're going to shipwreck people's faith. So they would stake out, they would be there, they would be at the love feast, they probably would even take the Eucharist, and they would talk people into the corner out of their salvation. I mean, it really is demonic. We won't go through all of these. But he says that they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Now, this is this is really probably the most inflammatory thing he says, because he's talking about the foam that you see on the top of the water in the ocean. And, you know, when, when I was a kid, I used to go play in that it, probably one time until I realized it was all muck and dirt. And he was saying, <laughs> you know, like, this isn't, this isn't anything clean. It's full of sediment. It's full of bedrock from the sea. It's full of the dirt and the scum. And he's saying that the residue of what they teach is scum. And, you know, he's not really being nice here. And I think this shows that sometimes being nice isn't what we're looking for. We need someone to say it as it is. Um, and he's doing this under the anointing of the Spirit. So um, it really is interesting. that, that And these are all really interesting words in the Greek. They're, they're very difficult to pronounce, which is why I'm not pronouncing them, because my English tongue can't get around them. 
But then maybe we'll kind of close with this. Uh, I will hone in on this. And he, he, Jude is prescriptive, and this is why it's pastoral. And he gives up pastoral. See, it starts off with with the, with a, a greeting, beloved. He continues to say beloved throughout this. Agape, 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 beloved or agapoi. The ones that you know I care about. I love you. He's affirming them in the faith. And then he gives them this instruction, and he says here. Um, he says here in verse number 22, which we sometimes we forget this part of even in there. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. So that's number one. Number two, he says, save those who uh, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And number three, he says to others, show mercy with fear. Now, these are imperative commands. Um, these are not options. These come off very strong in the Greek. So have mercy on those who doubt. So the first thing he's saying is. When, when you find people that are hesitating, they're, they're being subdued by the false teachers. The, the very first thing is to have mercy on them. Don't don't rebuke them and say, "How could you possibly even be considering that? How could you consider this as uh, you know as, as something that is you know truthful?" He says, "Don't don't go that route. Have mercy on them. Show them some ca- compassion." So one commentator says, um, "Get to the hesitators while they're hesitating. So take them out for coffee." Uh, answer their questions. Know your faith so well that you can be a support to them. So if somebody is, say, reading something on deconstruction or reading something that is uh, obviously not uh, acceptable doctrine, and they're trying to deconstruct their faith, get to them and try to and treat their questions as sincere and treat their questions as legitimate, and do your best prayerfully and through the help of the Holy Spirit to help that person in their faith. But then he says that the second class, and those are those who are in the fire. And so one commentator would say that this means that they have gone the wrong way and they're headed for destruction, um, and they know they're headed the wrong way. This calls for something a little bit stronger, uh, snatch them out of the fire, so have a face-to-face confrontation with them. This is where you challenge them. In the grace and love of God, challenge them face-to-face. Have a full frontal confrontation. Okay, and then, and then finally, number three, he says, and to others show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by the flesh. So these are individuals who have fully gone into it. They're, they're filthy with it and totally given over. But even so in that, he says, still show them mercy, but be very, very careful in doing that, that you're not corrupted by them. And I think that would suggest to us that we, you know, if we're going to go that route, we should do that in a sense of community, uh, in a sense of accountability, so that we are not given over to, to their sins or tempted alongside as we try to help them. Chris, we have about 90 seconds left, so it's time for a Greek lightning round here. I want to go back through some of the words that you said so our our, our listeners can kind of catch these again. I've got four that I wrote down, but I'm not going to try to say them in Greek. I'm going to give you the English one. You tell us what it is in the Greek and the the quick meaning around that. So let's start with the word salvation. Yeah, so salvation is soteria. And what does that mean? Uh, It just means to save. It has a range of meanings, but save is probably the most accurate. Love it. Faith. Pistis, that word there means simply, uh, it, it could mean faithful, faith, uh, just but of a common salvation, in this case, doctrinal practice. Love it. Uh, ungodly. Uh, Asabius, which would mean like uh, just not good, something that in this case, irreverence. Love it. And beloved, uh, wrap us up with that one. Uh, agapoi. So it comes from the word love. It just means dearly loved or someone who loves. No, Chris, I love what you do. I love getting into the original language. I know that we can geek out on this stuff, but it really is mm-hmm. important for those uh, that want to get a little bit beneath the surface of the scriptures and a little bit more into the thinking of that day. It does help tease out those concepts of the kingdom. So thanks for the work that you do. I love that you're part of the show. Thanks, Dr. Peter. God bless you. Yeah, well, uh, wraps up the show uh, for the day. I know it's uh, been quite an exciting uh, 90 minutes, Rosie. We've seen uh, David Miles come into studio. We talked quite a bit about Sermon on the Mount. We can catch the podcast there at myfaithradio.com. He did a great job 
talking about love your enemies and what, what again a challenging conversation with David. Oh my goodness, the whole the whole two hours has been fabulous. I mean, we talked to David, where we're right into scripture. We end with scripture with Chris. We have Ace in the mix of all that, and what an amazing man he is, and just hearing his heart to talk about the Christian way of life and our humanness through literature, especially fiction. Wow. I mean, we've just been all over the place. It's we, been so fun. We have indeed. Bill will be back, of course, in the captain's chair tomorrow. And uh, if you ca- if you missed any part of the show, you can head back to MyFaithRadio.com and catch the podcast. And I, I think the text line is also still open for some of the books that was part of the giveaway with Ace Collins. So you can text the word book to 877 933 2484. We've got a few books from the early part of his series to give away. So that wraps up our show for today. So delightful to be with all of you. Love just ending our day like this. As our, as Bill would say, our heads hit the pillow and we know that God still loves us and he has a great plan for our lives. We'll catch you soon, everybody again. Have a good Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.